That's why some of these companies go out and headhunt a particular people from other companies because it's not just their skill set they need, they need their attitudes, they need their, their minimum acceptable standards that they're going to uh, insist on in a training environment. You're listening to the Rotary Wing Show, a show for helicopter aircrew by helicopter aircrew. Each episode we travel the world to hear from the people that fly and support helicopters to learn a little bit more about their stories and pick up some tips along the way. If you want to catch up on past shows or see photos from the interviews, head over to rotarywingshow.com. You can also subscribe on iTunes, just search for Rotary Wing Show, and get future episodes direct to your phone. I'm your host, Mick Cullen. This is episode 28 of the Rotary Wing Show, and we're slowly getting a decent collection together now. Just uh, to acknowledge for a moment all the support and, and feedback that you guys have given to the show just to get it this far. And if you've been following along for a while now, then a big thank you, and also to all the guests who have you know shared their stories, something I'm you know extremely grateful for. Initially, the, the goal was to, to get to 10 episodes, and I thought if I could get that far, it'd be something cool. And I was, okay, let's let's head for, for 20. And so now, just so you know, I'm, I'm shooting for 50 episodes as a, a bit of a goal. And so just a, a little over halfway, now, and I've got three interview calls lined up for next week, uh, so we'll keep chipping away at that, and hopefully you'll be able to enjoy looking out for those soon. If you remember back to last week, I spoke about hosting the local Rotary Club out for dinner at the Aeropower Hangar, and that went off really, really well. Uh, David Salmon is one of the company directors, and he spoke about the different aspects of the helicopter support that Aeropower provides to you know electrical power line industry both here in Australia and overseas. The members of the Rotary Club, you know, they were really blown away. They had no idea that helicopters did that sort of work on the power lines and all the things that go on in the background just to, to make that happen. So it was a really good night and they just lapped it up being able to you know walk around the hangar and see the different helicopters up close. I really recommend it if you have a local base facility uh, or a school or a setup like that or a hangar that you reach out to the local service clubs or business groups in your area. So it could be Rotary, Lions, B&I, and invite them in for a dinner in the hangar to tell them a little bit about what, what you actually do and show them over the machines. You know, we kept things super simple and just did pizzas for the catering, but it was a, a real buzz for them and for us too, uh, but for them to be able to go back out into the community and sort of talk about uh, their night and then also the, the company operations, that's uh, it's just a great thing. So a couple of photos on the from the night posted on, on Facebook over at facebook.com forward slash Rotary Wing Show. And it just so happens that today's guest, David Early, was also a chief pilot at Aeropower, uh, performing all the electrical power line work, but that was long before I actually got to the company. And I stumbled on David through LinkedIn. We had several connections in common, and his profile, he was talking about the fact that he just published uh, his book, and so I bought a copy of the book and one thing led to another, as they do, and I'm really stoked to be able to, to bring you this interview. David Early was a Australian Army Bell 47 recce pilot in, in Vietnam. He's operated both fixed wing and helicopters in 18 different countries. And he spent much of his time operating in the mountains of Papua New Guinea. He's held check-in training and chief pilot roles. He was the CEO of, of Reef Helicopters, which then became Australian Helicopters, and during that time, you know, it grew from a $7 million a year in revenue uh, to $47 million. He's also a certified 
airframe engine mechanic that he picked up uh, along the way. So that's a very abbreviated version of a, a 46 year career. And this interview is a little bit different in that it's uh, the first one for this podcast where we've actually been together uh, for the recording. And uh, this was recorded at David's house. Uh, so you'll hear the, the birds and his dog in the, in the background. So just picture yourself sitting with us on a lazy Saturday afternoon and soak up some of the experience that David shares with us. So we're sitting on the back deck in the uh, lovely suburb here at The Gap in uh, Brisbane with David and Nancy Early. It's a look, it's probably a world away from where you guys have spent a lot of your lives, not just geographically, but also the surrounding, because uh, you know, obviously spent a lot of time in Papua New Guinea and places like that. So, uh, David, we'll just very quickly sort of run through your, I guess, your career and background experience to, to sort of set the scene and uh, talk about some of the things as we go along. But uh, you were uh, initially joined the, the RAF and um, were, I guess, unlucky enough to, to end up as a navigation training. But, uh, and that ended fairly quickly because um, you didn't uh, necessarily get too far there. Yeah. But have, have you got a particular story you want to share? <laughs> there's, not, there's not too many helicopter pilots out there who have done AstroNav uh, before. Did you ever use AstroNav ever again in your, uh, in your career after that? Uh, no, I didn't, I didn't use AstroNav, but I certainly used... Um the navigation training um, continuously right through the career and probably one of the biggest things was uh, the um, mental arithmetic drilling that went on um, as a major part of that navigation training Um, and it always struck me as I I had to remind myself several times particularly later in the US that not everybody had that and uh, working out uh, ground speed, you know, drift, uh, heading to fly, that sort of stuff without the aid of computer and uh, everything else was just second nature and I had to remind myself that it wasn't uh, something that a lot of helicopter pilots had had a background in. But yeah, the Air Force and I mutually decided to part company after uh, uh, 12 months um, and they probably made the right decision. I was too young and immature to... Uh, at that stage to handle some of the uh, the demands of that kind of life. So um, I don't begrudge them that uh, that decision at all and it enabled me to go on and do what I'd always wanted to do anyway and that's uh, to fly. So down the track then you obviously you joined the army, you went through uh, helicopter training and uh, came out the other side as, a, as an army helicopter pilot and uh, at this point, it's probably a good point to actually point out that uh, there's a book and we're, we're going to move very quickly through your career because there's, there's so much to cover and then uh, come back and visit. But uh, the, the book is called uh, Beneath Blades and the subtitle there is Flying at the Ends of the Earth, a, a pilot's journal. Um, so, David, you want to quickly give a, a plug for the website address and we'll cover that again later on. But, if folks, if you want to stop and, and have a quick look at the book first and then come back and, and listen to the rest of the, uh, the interview. Okay, the uh, website uh, where you can get that information is uh, basically just dhearly.com, d-h-e-a-r-l-e-y.com. That's where ordering information and some information about the book options is there. And also the Facebook page, uh, Beneath Blades, that same title, Beneath Blades, Flying at the Ends of the Earth, also gives uh, some continuing uh, information about that. But, uh, yeah, there's stock available in the US as well as in uh, Australia that uh, is available for anybody who wants to make an order. There you go. 
and we'll come back and we'll, we'll give some more details about that uh, towards the end. But as you're listening and we're going through these stories, I'm basically just picking out one or two um, through the, the career to sort of, I guess, paint a picture. But uh, yeah, you'll you'll get a feel for it, and uh, I'm sure if you get the book, you'll uh, you'll pick up the ones in between too. But pretty timely to talk too that the the forward for the book is written by uh, Tim Fisher, who an overseas audience won't mean much, but he was a deputy uh, prime minister here of Australia for a while, uh, and you obviously went through the the officer training in the army. I take it uh, with with Tim. Yeah, we did officer training unit at uh, Skyville. Tim was a national serviceman, but at that time, all of the aviation cadets were. Um, streamed through uh, that officer training facility. So, uh, yeah, he was a course mate um, during that training and was kind enough to uh, to write uh, a foreword for the book. Yeah, so that's sort of, for me, that really lifted the book up as far as, you know, credibility of uh, some of his um, sort of, uh, not so much calibre, I guess, but the public sort of standing uh, would, would sit there and write, and write that down. But I must admit, in the stories you tell through not only the, the army training but the RAF training, it seemed like a like a fairly permissive sort of environment. Like I remember going through, I don't think we would have gotten away with some of the uh, the things you guys maybe uh, pulled off. <laughs> uh, so there's lots of stories in the book there about um, I'll call them adventures that uh, that David got up to. <laughs> but. Uh, You'll find the, the Bell 47, and one of the names you mentioned in the book is, is Rob Rich. I think he was your um, one of the ground instructors. I don't know if he was also an airborne instructor at stage, but uh, yeah, my, my run with Rob was, was very beneficial too. So he was, um, the influence actually got me a position at Aeropower where I'm, where I'm currently working. So a lot to thank um, Rob for there. And Rob's very heavily involved in the Australian industry at the moment as far as industry and CASA uh, deconfliction would be possibly yes. a, a, a word to, to use. But uh, one of the things um, you talk about in the book, and I'll just pick a quick story out of, out of the training there, is the, the night um, auto-rotation uh, touchdowns. Right. And, you know, I imagine of, of many different activities you could do, that would be one that would get the, the heart rate uh, going. So, Yeah, I've never talked to any of the instructors since about that, but I imagine they had a similar amount of excitement. And it's probably why it wasn't... Uh, an exercise that was repeated uh, uh, more than, um, you know, tick that box, we've done it, because uh, descending at night in a 47 at 60 knots uh, with the landing light on, waiting for the uh, um, the sight picture to apparently explode into white light before you pulled pitch um, was fairly nerve-wracking. And these were full touchdown autos. So, full touchdown yeah. autos, and, of course, the actual speed of touchdown was uh, probably 30 knots. So uh, that did incredible damage to the skid shoes because um, you were landing on um, pavement um, at Ambley in, in those days. And, uh, but I, I don't recall anybody um, ever actually damaging uh, an aircraft during that. And, but it was just one small segment of the, uh, of the training program. Yeah, it's interesting because, uh, again, the Army Kiowa fleet, much later on, um, most of the damage would come from you know, all the rotations and spreading the skids at the bottom. Um, more so than, than any sort of other um, impact or cause. Yeah, and that surprised me, to be honest, because the Kiowa uh, is actually, uh, actually a better, better aircraft for, uh, at uh, auto rotation than the 47. And the other name that um, I sort of see float around now also is Tub Madison. So Tub's just come back on with some contract work, uh, thus likely too. So, yeah, there's you know, a whole range of guys who are sort of yeah. floating around the industry have been in it for a, a very long time. Well, courses those days were quite small, and um, 
the, uh, as you can see by the photo of the graduating class, there was only, uh, what I think, about six of us, maybe seven. Um, and Tubb uh, was one of those. And Robrich was, uh, I think I was his first student. Um, but um, the, uh, yeah, it, it takes me back. Um, it was quite a, a very small or tight environment. Uh, today, Army Aviation is such a huge entity compared to what it was then when uh, you knew everybody um, and everybody knew you. Everybody knew your foibles, your your strengths, your failings, and uh, it was all hung out there. You know, it was a very, uh, very open, uh, yeah, can't think of another adjective, but there you go. One of the jobs you had, um, obviously, with the, the Bell 47s um, was uh, survey work in the Northern Territory, and this is where, I guess, Nancy ends it as a story, and uh, <laughs> you met Nancy and then, then later married, and we'll, we'll cover <clears throat> Vietnam and, and PNG and things like that as we go along, but uh, I might talk about here that, you know, you spent such a, a long part of your career and, and getting many pilots, you know, doing touring work or uh, being in remote places and spending a lot of time sort of apart. And yeah, I was just going to see because if you've got anything to share as far as you know, relationships. I don't know. We're getting off, off the flying point here, but it's a, a very a big part for you know for pilots and their careers. And if you're just getting into the pilot career, then you kind of get to know this well. You spend a lot of time uh, on the road and travelling. Is yeah, is there a, a couple of secrets you guys can share that maybe made the? Uh... I don't know about secrets, but. Uh... One difference that I did find in speaking with some other wives from time to time was the fact that David was already a pilot when I met him again. And so that was just who he was. And I just accepted that. Um, there were some times when he was in difficult situations and people who shouldn't have been involved uh, were ringing me, asking me questions when... I was not aware at all of what was going on. Yep. Um, that was uh, a little difficult. Um, touring, I think the thing that I found hardest with touring, well, we have five children and a dog. <laughs> so taking over the role of head of the household uh, while he was gone and then him feeling he was coming back in as head of the household and trying to marry those two perspectives um, was quite, it was, that was challenging um, and something that had to be worked at. But first of all, you had to recognise it, that that's what was, that's what was happening. I've been, I've been the kingpin and, uh, and I have to let him... Uh, take over that role but of course I've put some things in place that he's not aware of yep. or may not have thought that was such a good idea <laughs> if he'd been there when the decision was being made. Look I think um, that's a very common thing. Life is, is much more sort of self-aware of these things than, than I ever was but uh, after a while she worked out it was normally day three of coming back where we'd have our our, uh, our fighter, our Barney, and it was that exact thing where <laughs> she'd had her routine and set up done and then I'd sort of yes. walk back in as if nothing had changed and, uh, yeah, it used to be a, yeah, around about the, the day three mark. So. <laughs> yeah, I, th I think I observed more of some of that tension in dealing with touring pilots rather than being a touring pilot because I disliked the touring lifestyle so much that I made ways to avoid it. 
most of my times away were chunks of time. So I'd be in the Philippines for six weeks and then uh, come home and then go to Colombia and then come home. You know, so there were, it wasn't so much, I did very little regular back-to-back yeah. touring. Um, but I watched uh, a lot of marriages um, undergo great strain through the, uh, the touring model. And uh, I think it uh, requires a tremendous amount of openness and um, negotiating in, between the partners to get on top of it. And I don't know if it's right or wrong at this point, to, but I remember one particular story where uh, a pilot who was just back in off a touring break picked up a, uh, a helicopter at a, a place in Papua New Guinea uh, early morning, um, tried to take off over the fence and uh, crashed, destroyed the aircraft. Um, and it turned out that he was 50% over gross. He Which was, is a massive amount. Oh, it, it took an incredible lack of, or lapse of judgment to, uh, to actually uh, do that. But then in the investigation, we found that his colleagues had heard him crying during the night. And then the investigation revealed that as he was leaving for the aircraft to come back onto tour, uh, his wife had told him that she was leaving him. Now, there's a host of lessons in there about um, uh, the responsibility for our friends, our, our, uh, our co-workers, but also the impact on safety of, uh, of in a sense, the direct result of a touring lifestyle. So it's not just uh, awkward, it's not just a source of tension uh, needing active uh, strategies to uh, to minimize the impact it can actually result in something far worse yes yeah, it's, it's, it's funny because some you know especially uh, i guess you know the younger we are the more we do it and that superhuman type thing we think okay i'm jumping the cockpit and turn off everything else happening in my life and, and just go flying concentrate on the flying whereas i guess as you get older you kind of maybe realize that it's, that's not a, a cut and dry thing that those things do sort of follow you as you go flying yeah uh, we're jumping way ahead here, but um, and again, we'll talk about you know, being chief pilot and, and CEO and things like that. In those sort of roles, musicians, and you're obviously aware of that sort of stresses. What sort of things would is, can companies do, or did you sort of do in those roles to kind of address that, or is it just something you need to, to manage and, and, and be aware of, or is there things you can do as a as an organisation or a company to to help with that? I think there has to be well, there has to be desirably, ideally. Um, any company that has touring operations needs to be uh, have people that are actively aware who are in the role of um, administering, setting rosters, um, deciding whether to be flexible or not, because flexibility with one person's roster inevitably impacts on another person's roster, which may mean that they're late home. There may be commitments that they've made when they get home. They're not going to make them if they extend a day. Uh, that has a ripple effect right through, uh, right through the whole system. Um, we actually found as a couple that we wound up in, um, uh, I wouldn't call it counselling relationships, but we certainly did a lot of listening and um, uh, offering a... because. In the kind of situation I'm thinking of at the moment, uh, we were actually resident on the operational base with fly-in, fly-out touring pilots coming in and out to that base and to other bases in the country. 
and we found that a lot of people uh, just needed to uh, to talk and to unburden themselves about um, some of the situations and and look for uh, for input. I would like to think that that kind of uh, empathy um, can be present in uh, most companies. The bigger the company gets, the harder that is to uh, to actually find. But at the individual manager level, it should never be um, ruled out as one of the um, critical skill sets that, uh, that a manager has, um, and that is being concerned for the welfare of his people. Yeah. Nancy, did you find yourself being a bit of a away-from-home mum in some of those scenarios for, you know, <laughs> for, for the, the crews and the air crew and people over there? Uh, more a listening ear than a... Yeah. Uh, I think I was too young to be a mum. <laughs> <laughs> no, just a listening ear and a support to David. Yeah. Sort of the way I've always seen my role as a as a support person for him. I mean, I had my own roles in other areas, but but within the family and and as far as his work, which was which has always been high stress. Yeah. Um, then in the background, I had to manage a lot of the stress. Oh, look, you said it was five children, wasn't it? So <laughs> I can only imagine living in places like Papua New Guinea that with uh, the children, and yeah, it'd be very, very difficult uh, on that side too. On the flying, do you have do you have a favourite flying memory? You know, through the through the, all the adventures <laughs> and things like that. It... Oh, boringly sitting in a four one two for how many hours? Chug chug chugging from a two one two a two one two from Garoka down to Milne Bay. Oh. It was interesting, but <laughs> my, it was boring. <laughs> the 212 is probably one of my favourite aircraft, and there was an opportunity, empty aircraft. I was going down to fly the Governor-General with PNG for something, and uh, so I said to the family, you know, come on down. <laughs> Little realising just uh, how... Uh, much that love of the aircraft wasn't shared. <laughs> yeah. So very, yeah. All right. So lots of lots of patience on your behalf then, because you don't sound particularly passionate about the the flying side then. So yes, and and flying flying to uh, Irianjaya, we were seconded to MAF in Irianjaya, and uh, I was about five and a half months pregnant with the fourth, and uh, had been feeling like death in Wewak, and we get on the flight kids and the pilot says to David, Dave would you like to come and sit up the front <laughs> and he goes, I'd love to <laughs> yes <laughs> there you go did you, did you ever, did David ever give you a, a go of the controls or try and yeah, once. teach you to, oh, yes, uh, once. to fly or? once and uh, I said keep the nose on the horizon there and, and, uh, and no, 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 down there on the horizon. There, no, down on the horizon. Yeah. It kept you know, rising and rising, and I concluded that natural ability, there was none. Um, <laughs> however, to, to be fair, later I found that part of the reason she couldn't, this is pretty fundamental for a flight instructor, I know as a lapse, but she couldn't see over the nose of the aircraft to see the point that I was saying, hold it there. Um, so she was looking for it. <laughs> and, That's understandable. And yep. pulling up, yeah, the, and of course the aircraft was climbing every time. That was the one and only attempt at flight instruction. 
No, I'm sure my wife would make a very good pilot, but I would definitely not be the, the person to teach you. It just would not work with the, the two of us in the cockpit. All right, let's jump back in time then. If we just quickly talk about um, Vietnam, because again, I can only imagine for everyone who went to Vietnam, it was such a you know a formative, I don't know if formative is the right word, but it's a, you know, definitely an experience. You know, again, in the book, and we won't go through them, there's so many stories, and it's, people who have read Chicken Hawk, you know, you don't go into much sort of depth, I guess, of camp life, but it's just, you know, little anecdote after anecdote after anecdote, little things sort of happen there. And um, you obviously spent a bit of time uh, with the, you know, subcontinent with the, the US forces and got to fly. Uh, I think you said you were the first Australian to fly the, the Kiowa. Yeah. Um, the, um, yeah, I had the privilege of doing about 140 hours of uh, command scout flying in the, uh, in the Kiowa, which was new to the US infantry. And the unit that I flew with had just taken the Kiowa over from the OH-6 and their accident rate had tripled because they were trying to do with the Kiowa what they had done with the OH-6. And until they learned to um, limit their aspirations, um, it was uh, it was a fairly painful introduction to a new aircraft. But um, And happily, as well as that, time of command flying. The, um, I also got uh, time in the Huey and a um, couple of weeks front seat Cobra. So a total of nine weeks with them that was probably one of the highlights of the whole uh, time in, in Vietnam. And being the you know, lone, I'm guessing the lone Australian at that stage in the US unit, you would have been a bit of a peculiarity. And I love the fact that you know, you've got the, the red kangaroo <laughs> stickers or the vinyls made up. And, and yeah. they put them on everything? Or that yeah, was you, one, you one of the guys one night and, and tagged the aircraft? Or no, I, I had help. Um, the, one of the guys in uh, Nuidat, one of the Australian fitters, equipped me with a, a whole supply of uh, large, medium and small red vinyl stick-on kangaroos. And uh, the Americans by then were really up for a, a laugh as well. And uh, we basically stick at every uh, aircraft in uh, third of the 17th Silver Spurs um, troop. And the, um, and the helmets had this, the little one, the little uh, red kangaroo. Uh, so the Kai was got the medium and the Cobra and the Huey got the big one, uh, which was great until they got a change of uh, commanding officer uh, about... I think about six weeks into my nine weeks, and uh, he instantly wanted to know what all the red rats were on his aircraft and demanded that they be immediately removed. So that was the end of that. But um, they, they survive in posterity in photographs. We should actually say this is, um, we're recording this on Anzac Day afternoon uh, here in Brisbane, and uh, yeah, they, they've mentioned a quick story this morning that I've never heard before, is that they, they actually uh, smuggled a couple of kangaroos across with them on the boats to Egypt, and had the, the kangaroos in Egypt as, as a mascot, so I've never actually heard that particular story, but uh, similar sort of deal there. And uh, actually, as we, I'm looking in through your window here, I can see the, the Stenton and um, a couple of the other wards there, that, and there's photos in the book. Uh, that, that they gave you, so yeah, it's obviously it's memorabilia that you've. Yeah, it was a it was a special uh, special time, and some lifelong friends uh, made during that time. There was also, to be fair, there was the uh, what I call the koala syndrome. Um, uh, I was the uh, cute oddity that talked funny, um, so you get a lot of attention and. Um, even pseudo-affection um, through just being an Australian, let alone, you know, whether you deserved it or not. Um, Although we had, we went to the 
third of the 17th reunion last year in yep. Missouri. And uh, that was good. There were several people who had flown with David. Uh, one black gentleman was the biggest smile. He said, you don't remember me. <laughs> but I just want to thank you. You brought me home every time. Wow. He was a... Uh a uh, Luft platoon gunner on the uh, on the Hueys, okay. and, uh, and he said, "I just love to hear you talk." <laughs> but to run into him after forty what forty five years or something was uh, was quite uh, quite special. Oh, yeah. a... Just as we we're talking, that the uh, the track into inaugural of the uh, of the MRH nineties is virtually over the house, so we're that's going to get louder. Yeah, so you'll obviously hear a machine go past in the background shortly. There's, um, oh, there's, there's a heap of different stories there. Again, you know, we won't pull them all out because if you, if you like the sort of stories there, go and grab the book and, and uh, read it there. We might just pause and wait for that to go through. So I'll just pick two quickly here. Maybe it covers sort of flying and I guess sort of camp life as um, the stories in the book is The Night Flying by Pause. And actually, before we talk about were you dual rated at this point? Were yeah. You, so you were, you were flying, and again, this is not in, not in the army. Okay. Um, I did obviously all army pilots at that stage uh, qualified on uh, the Windjill fixed wing aircraft first before streaming onto helicopter, um, and so that basic fixed wing training always sort of sat in the background. Yeah. But my time in the army was uh, pretty much strictly um, rotary wing. What fixed wing there was was just. Um, uh, stuff I chose to do privately. Um, oh, so it wasn't it like a new day. You weren't sort of jumping from. Definitely, it sounds like that case. You weren't jumping from the porter to a forty. No, and, not in the okay, army. Yeah. That kind of jumping back and forth certainly occurred later on. Yep. And uh, I think with maintenance test flights and other things, so there was one day in uh, Papua New Guinea where I flew seven types in one day. Yeah, sure. Um, but that was that was much later. Yep. Uh, I was going to talk about the, the flying at night with the porters overhead dropping flares. Right, down. yeah. And, you know, again, I guess uh, we're very lucky to, you know, when we were flying, we were flying, you know, night vision goggles and things like that. And we were flying unaided was kind of almost an emergency procedure for us. And so, yeah, that idea of, <laughs> of flying, you know, and flares, like, you know, such a flickering effect uh, too that, um, yeah, flying low level treetop height under the, the, the illumination of flares, that's... Uh, yeah. Well, the worst part was actually when you were below treetop height in a, in rice paddies or something like that, which were usually ringed by trees. And um, it was fine while the flares were, because they normally tried to have at least two in the air or two burning with a third on the way. Uh, but if you had two duds, one after the other, um, you could suddenly, without warning, have everything go black. Yeah. And um, when you're less than 50 feet above the ground um, heading for the tree line, that, that could get rather daunting. Because, uh, again, before I did the aviation, there was a, you know, a, a signal for FO uh, groups for the artillery and, and the artillery alone coming down, you know, the FO would be calling adjustments and I could have no idea how they could pull the adjustments because the, the flare, the, the shadows and everything move around and uh, so, yeah, flying, <laughs> I yeah. That, well, that would be a scary thing. And then back on camp life, there's a story where you, they use the smoke grenades down the, the toilet yeah. to, to, to clear the, the, the flies. Yeah. And uh, I'll see one unfortunate chap, I guess he was over keen and uh, dropped a, uh, say, incendiary grenade, grenade yeah. rather than a smoke grenade down. Yeah, with the resulting woomph that uh, yeah, resulted in uh, 
a scene that looked like that photo of the Fuzzy Wuzzy Angel leading the uh, Australian digger down the track, uh, blind. Uh, down between the rubber trees comes uh, one pilot leading the other pilot um, who thought he was blinded, um, but uh, it turned out that the flash had actually fused his, eyel his eyelashes together. And certainly he was superficially burned, but I think it was uh, more shock and embarrassment than, uh, than anything else. More so for uh, the uh, hygiene duty man who had apparently taken his responsibilities to the officers in other regions quite seriously. With the fly plague had uh, dumped uh, some sump oil down the uh, toilet just moments before the officer went there and started following it up with an incendiary grenade. Um, yeah. All right, so again, we just don't have the time. There's story after story here in the book, and uh, it's very entertaining and, uh, and, and eye-opening too would be the, the other adjective, I guess, there. Um, back in Australia, again, getting away with a few more things than I think I necessarily maybe got away with, with uh, flower bombing uh, Army Corps <laughs> officers and, and things like that. But, uh, yeah, so also that time in the, in the Army finished up and then you guys um, moved on. And the uh, the JARS organisation, I don't know if you just quickly want to talk uh, very briefly to give people an idea of the scope of, of what it was, mm -hmm. and then we'll talk about the, I guess, your time in Papua New Guinea. Well, JARS was uh, an aviation, basically a corporate in-house aviation department for Wycliffe Bible Translators, um, operated, um, uh, whose, Wyc Wycliffe had about 6,000 members working in 42-odd countries, uh, working in translation of uh, unwritten languages um, and translating parts of the Bible um, for the people of those places and engaged in literacy and uh, other stuff like that. And because of the remote nature of the work in so many remote countries, they needed aviation support. So that's what we went into for the next 17 years. And uh, fairly early on, I was asked to go and set up a helicopter training program in North Carolina because they'd just been, um, they just received uh, six ex-National Guard helicopters out of surplus infantry. And we were going, they were going to uh, position them in Indonesia, Philippines and Papua New Guinea and possibly Colombia. And so right from the, the beginning of my time with JARS, it was basically as the helicopter subject matter expert for solo or pilot-only operations in remote areas, um, yeah. which most of the other people involved in the organization, US pilots, had been multi-crew, uh, larger aircraft operations, uh, many of them coming out of the Chinook uh, and, uh, and Huey Field. Yeah, I don't know. At the time, it sounds like you operated all over, you know, Papua New Guinea and, and here in Jar and places like that. But I, I guess back to the that operational side, the fact that, as you said, these were individual pilots with individual machines in very, very remote areas. So the initial training and I guess the, the check-in training side of things must have been, you know, again, the organisation wouldn't have a very big budget, so each machine would have been, you know, fairly critical to the operation. Um, I don't know if you want to talk just about that having to cover such a large area and um, in, in fairly, not so much, I guess, risky, but, you know, difficult conditions for those pilots yeah. having uh, to sort of monitor uh, and check and train in those scenarios. Yeah, one of, one of the gratifying things about that organisation was I have never seen a better set of flying standards uh, and maintenance standards, engineering standards in any organisation than, than that one. Um, 
it wasn't that they weren't short of budget, they were, but they weren't commercially pressed and so they would basically uh, raise the necessary funds to meet the uh, what they believed was the required standard. And so we had uh, some of the smartest um, Hiller 12 E's uh, in the world at the um, because of the dedication and uh, professionalism and uh, and the willingness for the organization to let some of those people actually uh, be that in their uh, in their chosen field but uh, we also spent three months uh, on fixed wing orientation and three months on rotary wing orientation for qualified pilots not to train a pilot but to prepare a trained pilot for field operations. Yeah, and reading through that was really striking. I thought it was kind of, I guess, surprising and very you know, impressed that the amount of uh, training or the investment that was actually then put into the into hmm. the, the staff who were going out. Because as you said, these were, you know, and I guess in your case, again, you're, you're quite experienced, and you said some of the other folks were, you know, Chinooks and things like that. So uh, already starting at a fairly experienced base and then pumping a lot more training into these folks. So yeah. it's quite an impressive organisation. I made a couple of notes here, and again, but... Just your time in Papua New Guinea, you, know, you talk about it's almost like 12 months just to get checked out in the whole country because it's just so many different individual strips and each individual strip would have its own yeah. sort of peculiarities. Uh, all the one-way strips, the mountain flying that goes with it, taking a you know a, a piston heli up to 1,400, sorry, 14,000 feet on you know, different occasions. Uh, you know, Certainly not by choice. <laughs> <laughs> and again, one of, the, one of the things I was really uh, missed out on, I, mean, I didn't get to go on any of the Papua New Guinea trips Um so I haven't flown up there, but you know, the people who did always come back with the you know, stories of the, the hills and the clouds and, yeah. and the bits of pieces that go with it. You've had uh, a turtle loose in the cockpit. <laughs> You've been talking about carrying goats, um, uh, PVC pipes with external loads, uh, having to crash tackle a village elder to uh, protect the, the tail rotor. Well, to protect uh, the village elder. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah, to protect the tail rotor. But, yeah, that is kind of difficult in a, in a rural village setting to try to convey to people the danger of a uh, of a tail rotor that they can't see, particularly a guy who's probably close to blind anyway, but one of the most esteemed elders of the village. Um, and the only way to keep him from walking into it, having to crash tackle him. Uh, it's a bit difficult over the noise of a running helicopter that's that nobody else is tending uh, to uh, and trying to keep 200 people away from the aircraft and try to explain uh, in uh, words that aren't meaning anything because you don't have their language at that point why you had to just crash tackle their elder. Yeah, all of that yeah. gets a little... Uh, and an army had... Uh, I was actually telling that story to uh, an army aviation detachment that were up there and two days later, they had somebody walk into a tail rotor outside Mount Hagen. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So it, it was a very, very real... I can think of two other accidents up there with uh, local people walking into tail rotors as well. Yeah, one of the, so you, I think one of the places you landed, you were actually the first you know, white people. Um, that yeah, it was in Erie and Jaya, yeah. yeah. Um, during that time, and this comes back to, I guess, discussion talking about the cultures, but you then went back and did some further study basically to, to work on that sort of intercultural thing and not just talking sort of, I guess, Papua New Guinea, um, you know, Australian type thing. It was also you, you speaking to talk about even the difference between Australian and, and US culture yeah. in the organisation. Well, we'd been invited back to... I was international chief pilot at that stage of JARS uh, based in North Carolina and we'd been back there two years 
And just to give you a real quick example, which is, I think, not in the book, um, the, uh, on the, in the same week that Nancy came to me and almost in tears saying, can we go home? I've never felt so lonely. In that same week, there were at least six women who were in a group that Nancy was um, having for orientation uh, lessons on different things about working in other countries, who came to her and told her that she was the closest friend they'd ever had. Now, when you have experiences like that, you start to say there's something that's not quite gelling here. So our relationship expectations are very, very different than a lot of American relationship expectations, and our expectations were not being met by any stretch. And so it was issues like that, and having worked with many nationalities in uh, Papua New Guinea and, uh, and even in Colombia and places like that, Mexico, we were becoming more and more aware that as a multicultural team, we were probably uh, woefully ignorant of each other's actual um, cultural values and uh, cultural value system. And so that was becoming a passion of mine. And uh, one day Nancy came to me with a, an article about um, study programs that were available uh, in uh, intercultural communication with an emphasis on training. And so that's why we went to uh, Vermont and started that, and that took about, there were six months actually in Vermont, but it um, went on to take a total of about two years. And it didn't really help me be a better communicator cross-culturally, to be honest. It just made me more understanding of why I was so bad at it. <laughs> okay. well, the leader question of that was, you know, again, the, the helicopter industry, workforce and the project is air crew generally because it's such an international sort of you know, career. So many operations would have that sort of multicultural uh, background. So yeah. I was hoping you were going to share some. Well, just <laughs> some well, a, a real quick, a real quick uh, insert is oftentimes when you're working in that exact environment where the helicopter industry is working, where you're all working in a third culture, and you're not working in your parent culture, everybody unconsciously makes uh, allowances for one another and uh, can actually come out of that experience feeling that um, uh, they've done pretty well. When the rubber meets the road is when you actually have to live in somebody else's culture and function in that culture, buy a house and, and, uh, and, and live in that culture and send your kids to school in that culture and, and do that for several years. That's when you need to really uh, engage with the culture and you no longer have the luxury of the tourist mindset of being able to walk away uh, and let everything that is too difficult just slide over the top. You have to come to a, well, my personality type has to come to an understanding of what the dynamics are that are going on and develop strategies to uh, to get around it. Right. Can you give a, maybe just an example of that? Yeah. yeah. Um, in things like... Um, if you actually read in this, you'll find that American values uh, underpinning respect, loyalty, authority, trust, all of those are f significantly different than the Australian understanding. You'd think that some of those are universals. No, they're not. And a, a quick example that might not seem to be directly related to that is sitting around chairing a meeting as a chief pilot in, uh, uh, in the U.S. with a U.S. team uh, at the table. 
and having just obtained agreement to a particular thing independently with several of the members of that of that uh, team and then find them staying silent uh, during the meeting because of one person and it led us to uh, a phenomena called uh, ownership of um, of ideas where an Australian will come up with an idea throw it on the table and be quite content with people then um, critiquing it hacking at it and it, he's not feeling uh, personally that he's yeah. birthed it and now it's something that somebody is dealing with as if they're dealing with his child in the American environment, that was not the case at all. Everybody had a, an unconscious, intuitive understanding that if somebody made a suggestion at a meeting, you dealt with that suggestion as if you were dealing with the individual. Okay. And so just a little thing like that for a manager uh, makes the Australian come across as abrupt and harsh and, um, uh, and uncaring. Um, and it took me too long to uh, to realize some of those things there's people that have written reams on uh, the respect loyalty trust authority uh, uh, grouping who have been engaged by people like uh, esso in the bass strait who had american management and australian labor and couldn't understand why it was such a disaster on wheels so they brought in somebody a cross-cultural specialist to try and tell them why and a lot of our Australian cultural distinctives are born out of totally different uh, historical experiences than uh, the US or Britain or Korea or um, all of the other countries, nationalities that we worked with. And they lead to totally different apprehensions or understandings of some of those fundamental issues. They might not uh, be glaringly apparent uh, in the day-to-day situation, particularly in a third culture environment. But my goodness, if you are in a minority position with a majority of that other culture, uh, you start to run into those issues uh, fairly, fairly quickly and quite, sometimes quite seriously. Now, real quick, if I can, yeah. for some people, that's exciting. For me, it's meat and drink. I, I thrive on it. I love it. For many people, it's threatening. I finished up writing a uh, paper on... Um, the historical development of Australian cultural distinctives for for that master's program. And many Americans got angry reading it because they, uh, one of the fundamentals about the American cultural value system is the strong belief in the self-made man. I am what I have chosen to become. Sure. Rather than necessarily the environment. Exactly. And, 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 the the the, uh, the thesis the the suggestion that they might actually be more a product of their history and their um, and their national and family and uh, ethnic experience is quite disturbing to them because it shakes right at the bedrock that whole fundamental conviction that I am what I have chosen to become. Hmm. Now that's getting well outside flying <laughs> yeah, okay. uh, and aviation, but um, I guess that's that's the other side of, of my life and it's always been a, uh, a not always, since probably uh, Papua New Guinea um, and working in multicultural teams, it has become a real passion. Well, well, staying within that sort of cultural circle and we talk about culture within aviation and with, even between different companies and because um, a lot of your work 
uh, as we talk about now, going into Pacific Helicopters and Reef and then Australia, mm-hmm. is, I guess, you know, acting as chief pilot and uh, check and training and then executive positions where you were, you know, contributing to that sort of culture. Uh, before we start that, Nancy, are we okay? How are we going for time? I know you're a guest here, so... I'll have to go and put the dinner on shortly, but that's okay. <laughs> um, yeah, kick us out when you need to, to kick us out. Um, so, yeah, uh, yeah, can you talk to that difference in, in culture, even just within, that, uh, within aviation? Yeah. Um, uh, cul- culture culture is one yeah. of the most tenacious, uh, pervasive things that there is in any organisation, and, and by that I mean... The way an organization is set up, the people, it comes right down to the people that set up an organization right in the beginning. I can remember in Papua New Guinea, I had met a guy in the States who hadn't been in Papua New Guinea for 10 years. But when I went back to Papua New Guinea, I could see him. I could see him in the procedures, in the, uh, the, the impact he'd had, the impact that he had had on the culture, on the, the, the ethos, the, the style of operating, the, the, uh, the uh, relative margins of safety employed in decision-making, uh, future strategies, um, um, particular role of pilots, all of that was glaringly obvious um, in the way uh, the organisation was. And some of that stuff will still be there 30 years after somebody's left. It's very difficult to change... Uh, how an organization feels about itself and it feels about itself the way uh, people have been uh, conformed or even attracted to it in the first place. So it confirms itself as time goes by. So if you have a company that's grown up as pretty much a bush charter um, operation and suddenly needs to be functional in uh, an IFR offshore or over water, uh, night uh, multi-engine operation, you have got a huge gap in attitudes, decision-making criteria, even in the business of uh, recruiting uh, appropriate staff. Um, So there's an enormous amount of change that has to happen in an organization like that, and it cannot uh, happen quickly. There was a BP auditor once when I expressed my frustration in Papua New Guinea at the slowness of some change, who said to me, Dave, keep an even strain and you'll be amazed at after five years how much has changed. But boy, that is like watching paint dry at times because you feel like you're making no progress at all. Uh, And sometimes, sometimes it comes down to having to make wholesale people changes to change the culture. Just transplant or ex- you have cut to, out some... Yeah, if yeah. you do not have somebody with the, for instance, with the multi-engine uh, standards um, needed for a, uh, a particular task, you don't create that. You don't make that out of your own people in a hurry. That's something that is uh, a pro- product of training, background, and a long period of time. So... That's why some of these companies go out and headhunt particular people from other companies because it's not just their skill set they need, they need their attitudes, they need their, their minimum acceptable standards that they're going to uh, insist on in a training environment. As soon as you back off and indicate that something isn't quite as important as perhaps somebody else has said it is, then the whole thing, the whole fabric weakens. And uh, yeah, um, 
And I've found myself, I guess, rightly or wrongly, uh, in most of my positions, um, sometimes coming in almost to be unpopular um, in the uh, first instance because they've asked me to come in because there's some significant change that needs to be made. And I was foolish enough to forget that too often because by the time you've been in it for 18 months, um, in a situation like that, you can be going home to your wife and saying, I think it's the worst decision we ever made. Because it is not fun. It yeah. is not enjoyable. Because people's feelings are involved. People's self-image uh, is involved. And um, and that's difficult to, uh, to be delicate and uh, careful with that and achieve the change that's needed. Is there a danger where you then get absorbed? So you, you come in as a, an external person into that company to make some of those cultural changes. There's a, at some point you almost then get absorbed into that existing culture in some aspects. Yes, yes. It's what I used to call conforming to the norm. Yep. And that's one of the, the most dangerous things for a new pilot going into a company that perhaps, let me turn it around. One of the most positive things about joining a good company is that you are encouraged to conform to the norm. If the norm is something that is uh, high standard and desirable, then you are in a good place because that's you are being rewarded for conforming to that, not necessarily what you've come from. But if the opposite is true, if you're in a uh, if you're coming from a high standard operation into a bush operation, then you are at risk because there is a great tendency for new people for acceptance and for. Um, well, basically for acceptance, to uh, start to weaken or soften their previously strongly held convictions yeah. uh, and they will start to then do things that they would never have dreamt of doing before. The Australian industry, is, it's almost, and I guess it's probably the same for overseas too, but it's almost set up that way because, you know, again, being blessed with a military background, you, you know, you absorb that whole culture that goes with the military as well. But, you know, for a new pilot going through, doing their, their CPL, going out into the wild wilderness, joining a company to get their experience, they're, I guess, almost, you know, as the machines get bigger and, and those sort of cultures build, it's that early couple of years when you're actually most at risk and that's often when you're going into those operations which might not have yeah. the, the budget to... And, and sometimes you don't have the, the, the luxury of a choice. But in a situation like that, I would say, and I... I I guess I tried to put a few of these at the, at the end of the book. Um, your initial training is incredibly important because it lays the groundwork for your entire career. Um, but regardless of what aircraft you're flying or what situation you're in, if you should always strive to fly to the highest standards and set yourself goals that perhaps nobody else thinks are important. Not non-commercial ones or non-economic ones but ones that keep you putting a demand on your skills as a pilot because when you do move to the bigger equipment you don't learn all that at that point unless it's part of your foundation so really to break that right down into a really particular thing then are you talking about when you go flying and you're doing your charter from a to b that you try and you know maintain your height within 50 feet or you yeah. turn and you're keeping whatever tolerance there is yeah. so I did evaluations on pilots um, for JARS for many years in the States, and we would spend a week uh, evaluating uh, a pilot. And, and we were looking for plus or minus 50 feet, plus or minus 5 degrees on, uh, on um, uh, heading um, uh, at the outset. 
uh, and that tightened up uh, the further into the evaluation because it took a week, six flights. But what I noted, um, and you could almost tell the background of the pilot by the uh, style of flying that, uh, that he produced, um, and you get people who were obviously uh, completely comfortable with plus or minus 200 feet, and it was evident that they had always been thus. You don't turn a pilot who's comfortable with plus or minus 200 feet into somebody who can fly an ILS very quickly at all because you're dealing, and particularly an experienced pilot, because you're dealing with a lifetime of laid down patterns that are very, very difficult to change. But it was such a delight to get even low time pilots, uh, and by low time I'm talking a thousand hours, to get low time pilots who you would get up and you would find them plus or minus 25 feet and obviously annoyed with themselves if they weren't maintaining that. At that point, you knew that you were dealing with somebody who was either OCD or he was disciplined or he was or he was uh, determined to uh, to be as professional as uh, possible. Obviously, obviously, there's a difference between the two. But, yeah. All right. Well, let's jump to those points and cover off those. Just because, again, uh, folks, there's so much we're skipping here. You know, uh, David's been. In charge of you know large companies in Papua New Guinea and Australia, and and, and taking them from seven million dollars and turnover to, to sort of forty-seven million dollars and things like that. So um, we're talking government contracts and all those things we're not probably have time to cover into. But I jump to those points. So you talked about yeah the initial training becomes the, the foundation um, of the rest of your career. Is there things people can do during their training or? Uh, you know, because uh, in many ways the CPL is almost like a, a commodity, the you know, the qualification itself. But um, you know, what should people, if they're, if they're going through training, how can they, they get the most out of it to, to set themselves up? Is there, is there an attitude? Is there a particular thing, like individual behaviours they should be doing or uh, books they should be reading? Like, I think basically it's it's careful selection of the training um, environment and, um, and even down to... Um, um, who is involved in the training? You know, everybody, for instance, that's done training under Tub Matheson um, in Queensland will speak highly of it because because that's Tub's background and that's what he produces in his training. Um, there are schools that are set up uh, that are simply there to um, to churn through students, and uh, some of those. Uh, and, and really, I'm not across it in detail anymore uh, at that level, uh, so it's pointless you know, talking specifics. But in principle, make sure that the training uh, environment that you choose is one that is, comes well recommended by the kind of people that you place some uh, credibility in in terms of their recommendation. Uh, you talk here, again, your, your personal integrity will be a measure of your character. Uh, through your career, it's a, you said like you know, that army aviation initially it started such a small community, but even now, as you said, like companies grow, but it's, it's still a, a pretty small community as far as individuals' reputations go. Yeah, I, I guess that it reflects a, a strong um, conviction of mine um, and a and a personal value. But um, I found that a personal sense of integrity uh, flows into so many other areas. It flows into um, how uh, 
they work for an employer. It flows into how they treat the equipment. It flows into uh, whether they um, uh, whether they're honest with uh, with their uh, flight times and their uh, um, and invoicing. Um, there, if if I ever lost my trust in a in a uh, staff member. Um, it meant that I could never really fully depend on that person uh, again, almost. Um, and I remember a particular set of uh, professional uh, review um, sessions we were doing in Papua New Guinea, and there was one particular guy who I had marked down for integrity, and he was quite, quite um, miffed, um, upset even and uh, demanded to know why uh, I had marked him down for integrity. And I reminded him how he had gone into such great detail to explain to me how you bring a Harley into Australia um, without paying any duty on it, um, without realising that what he was actually saying to me was, this is what I think is acceptable behaviour. So, for instance, a person who signs on for a contract for a given period of time, uh, your word is your bond. And the attitude that I can break my bond if I want, if the ground of advantage shifts, this applies in marriages as well as anything else. If you have given your word, then you either retreat from that with honor uh, by negotiating a, uh, an exit that your employer or your partner or somebody else can uh, agree with, uh, or you stick with it even when the ground of advantage has shifted. And that, to me, is a huge indication of character. And also, as an, as an employer, it's a huge tick in the box for an individual employee because it, I know then that if, if that person gets into trouble with the terms of his contract, he's going to come and talk about it and we'll work something out. He's not going to come in one day and say, oh, by the way, I've accepted a job with somebody else and so sue me. And there's a couple of occasions in the book, and I guess it happens to any sort of management team, where you, you kind of felt like you were left high and dry occasionally. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and obviously I felt more strongly about that because it impacted on me far more than it did on the individual. But the... Um, and and some many times there are quite legitimate reasons why somebody has to uh, back away from a, from a commitment. But it has to be done in a way that preserves integrity. Otherwise, uh, you're cheapening yourself, and um, in my view, um, evidencing yourself as less of a person for it. Playing straight off the back of that, when you were back in Brisbane, you, there was one stage where you spent a fair bit of time next to, or part of the company was an engine overhaul uh, sort of facility, and you got to see some of the damage of the engines as they'd come through for, for overhauls. Yeah. Uh, you can talk on, on uh, I guess, you know, back to integrity, I think, but you know, maintaining sort of aircraft limits and engine limits, what the following effect is for the company financially and, and, and yeah. what you see when that well, A lot of people, I found, believed that manufacturer limits were set with a uh, huge fudge factor, and uh, it didn't really matter if you um, over-temp the aircraft you know, once or twice or... You um, and the first of all, I found that's a very ignorant position. Um, the fudge factor, if there is one, is there for a very good reason. But secondly, uh, what I found uh, by having my office close to the engine overhaul shop was being able to go in and see every engine that came in from my pilots in teardown, and to be able to see the uh, 
the red dust that was now uh, fused as glass into the um, into the uh, turbine uh, section and uh, the damage uh, the eroded and some engines that defied explanation as to why they were conti- they were still running when they were removed for overhaul and we could actually track down the use on that aircraft and actually identify um, pilots and it became evident that there were people who habitually uh, overtempt uh, engines um, didn't report it and apart from the fact that it might not kill that pilot it certainly may kill his friend and it will even more certainly send his employer broke because the much much higher than forecast expenses on uh, on repair were uh, you know could be just amazing i mean i saw a compressor brand new compressor completely worn belong beyond limits in 92 hours of operation in uh, central australia yeah. um, principally or well, two two reasons one the manufacturer sorry the the operator didn't quite take seriously enough the uh, experience in the area and the nature of the dust but secondly the pilot didn't believe that it could possibly be that bad he'd never operated in australia before and uh, 92 hours and I can tell you those photographs make your blood run cold that he actually didn't have an engine failure at 150 feet over a load with a long line. Yeah, all right. Well, um, we're coming from time there. I was going to maybe if we finish up and talk about as senior company management and as a CEO, having gone all the way through uh, being a line pilot, what do line pilots, I guess, need to know about the upper management and, and considerations like, you know, what were your thoughts on an average day as a CEO for the company trying to, to keep things running that, you know, play back to the, to the line pile where they're, they're sitting there and, and thinking about their individual jobs and things like that? But I guess how can they think of the bigger picture and sort of, um, and I guess, fit in or, or work in with the, the management sort of uh, mindset? Yeah, I, I can talk about my experience, but uh, I'm not sure that it necessarily translates across as a generic to every uh, company. But... I know that the management, for the most part, the management in uh, the companies that we were working in were fundamentally concerned with two things, keeping the company running and um, treating employees as a, as a valuable um, commodity um, and being concerned for, the, for their welfare. Oftentimes, um, keeping the company running would... Uh, lead to decisions that were absolutely unavoidable that to line pilots and engineers and administrators uh, would sometimes appear to be um, just the management uh, screwing us again. I can remember the agony of having to uh, to do some of those things with uh, knowing that they were going to be uh, misunderstood. So I guess my, my the point that I would make would be uh, don't assume the worst about some of the motivation behind some of those decisions because uh, that might be a long way from the truth. Um, uh, there was one particular contract uh, that I inherited that uh, once, and, and this is in the book so I don't need to go into too much detail, but, the, but I found that there were rock-solid limits on on how much uh, was available to meet employee um, 
entitlements and um, and still had the uh, margins that were necessary for a good, safe operation. So I didn't have the freedom to do things that I desperately wanted to do. Yep. Uh, that's very difficult to explain to people that you're trying to convince uh, that the company is headed for bigger and better things when you're obviously treating some of these decisions uh, as if you're on your way out. Yep. Um, so it was a balancing act for probably a large portion of the time there in trying to to constantly keep in mind that we were a company of people and that every person in the company was important. And probably one comment at the end of that was uh, one of the things that happened at the end of my time in uh, Australian was uh, a series of buyouts by private equity. And one of the things that it's very difficult to run any company uh, for the employees when it's being when it's owned by private equity, uh, because private equity's major consideration is uh, making money in a defined window of time uh, with an exit strategy that uh, gives them a certain profit margin. Uh, so, in that window of time, they are fundamentally concerned with managing market expectations on a month-to-month -month basis to preserve their exit price that they're looking for uh, to get out. Um, that's what they're there for. They're not there for the long-term health of the helicopter company or the long-term well-being of the employees. To be a senior manager in that environment is almost impossible because you so are stuck between the, the two sort of absolutely yeah. absolutely you are being given um, mandates to produce certain month-on-month uh, -month, uh, profit um, figures that uh, just doesn't fit in an Australian helicopter industry uh, context because contracts are seasonal contracts uh, uh, come around in clusters and uh, in between those clusters you may well be plateauing uh, in your actual growth. A private equity company cannot cope with uh, plateau. Mm. So happily, Australian is now owned uh, not by private equity anymore, but a lot of helicopter companies are. I guess my, my final point on that would be don't sell your manager short before you're really satisfied that, um, that he's not doing everything he's free or able to do. Okay. So I just want to um, give the details for the book again. And uh, there's a stock actually, printed stock in the US as well here in Australia. So overseas listeners, you can actually get uh, sort of locally delivered stock uh, if you're in the uh, US or Canada. Um, so just the website again for the book, Doug? Uh, dhearly.com. That's uh, Delta Hotel, Echo Alpha Romeo Lima Echo Yankee.com. Um, and that has the, uh, the ordering details on it. Um, in the US, it's only $5 postage. Um, in Australia, it's a little more than that. Uh, uh, but, but um, yeah, it, you, you can um, order on there. Yes, yeah, so, look, it's, it's a really good book because it, it covers, you know, everything from the, you know, going through, you know, Dave's training, actually being in, uh, in Vietnam, and then all the stories through Papua New Guinea. And then, uh, I guess, especially if you're in the management side of things, you know, David sort of, you know, travels through the, the management world of aviation up to the CEO of a fairly large um, Australian uh, helicopter contracting company. So, yeah, it's a great book. And 
Uh, these guys have got guests here waiting, I've been patiently waiting while we finish the interview. So Nancy and David, thank you so much for having me at your house here on the uh, back deck and uh, being able to talk about uh, your experiences here uh, today. Thank you. Thank you. A pleasure. David's book is a, a really good read. I purposely tried to, to steer clear most of the content in the book and take this interview into some new ground just so we didn't double up. But we touched on some of the stories and you know there's a heap more there. So you've had a pretty good idea about what David is about. The book you know, is just a collection of stories from his career and some of the antics that he was involved in, especially in his early days. And the last part of the book goes into some of the challenges that chief pilots and company managers face. So there's a little bit in there for, for everyone. There'll also be a link on the blog post for this episode uh, to where you can get the book over at rotarywingshow.com. It was awesome, though, being able to sit there on the back deck and as we were chatting and recording, we were looking through David's uh, kitchen window and see on the wall the awards and the, the stencil and the hat that uh, there's photos of in the book that he talks about. And then also being able to meet Nancy, David's wife, who must be you know, one very amazing woman in her own right. Big thanks again to our sponsors, trainmorepilots.com. There's a place to go to get help with your flight school online marketing. So trainmorepilots.com. Don't forget you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or Stitcher. There's also the Facebook and Twitter accounts that go along with the show. If you get the chance, check out worldhelicopterday.com. I'm still looking for a couple more venues to have open days to tie in with that. So again, if your organization or your company wants to be involved, I can give you some publicity there on the the main uh, event website for worldhelicopterday.com. If you leave a review on iTunes for the show, that would be amazing and really help me out. But let's wrap up. That's it for this week. Uh, It's been another episode of the Rotary Wing Show. Thanks for joining us and fly safe.